So a spiritual home in the real world. Underneath our logo, on our stationery, on our cards, and in other places, you will find that said, a spiritual home in the real world. I thought of that when I read Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I thought of what he might have meant in opposition to that when he said, we lament, longing to be clothed with our heavenly home. I wondered if we understood what it meant when we audaciously first stated that we are a spiritual home in the real world. And if that boast, to put it in words that Paul might have used, was more than a catchphrase? Or does it really mean something? And if so, do we have a clear idea of what it means to be able to say we are a spiritual home in the real world? And do we understand that any more than Paul did when he said he longed to be clothed with heaven? Is there a difference between this spiritual home in the real world and Paul's heavenly home for which he so longs? Now, none of us were there with Paul during his days. His writings have been edited and translated and edited and translated again. Not all of his letters have been found. In fact, the second, second Corinthians is believed to be a compilation of at least two letters. So we are unsure exactly what it was that Paul had in mind. But I think we get the idea, and that is the power of examples and the power of parables. We get the idea, or as my professor in seminary used to say, when you read the Bible, it reads you. This is an interaction, not a transaction. But from what we do have with regard to Paul, we can say a few things. One is that a possible difference between Paul's heavenly home and our spiritual home is in measurement, the way in which we measure. Paul's measurement was simple. The earthly time is a passage to the heavenly time. Our measurement, however, is a bit more complex, a little bit more into metrics most likely rooted somewhere in the difference between the ancient East and the modern West cultures. And while Paul simply and elegantly refers to heaven and eternal life as putting on the heavenly clothing, we dig more deeply, because that's what we do, into the spiritual home. We count up the good works we do, the peace and comfort we find, the serenity and security we seek, and are able to achieve in our own version of spirituality. We see this as a place to be clothed, not to long for clothing. We seek this time, this spiritual home to be permanent, a permanent kingdom on earth, maybe secretly wishing that there will be no end somehow, some way we will live into a spiritual transition that will eliminate all struggles, all discrimination, all discord, all conflicts. If that is the spiritual home we seek here, we might want to reconsider that. 
Because as Paul tells us, this is a time of longing for heavenly home. Not pulling the heavenly home down to us. Paul has no question that eternal life is beyond this life. As life continues beyond this form. Paul can't wait to fully die into Christ and to be freed in eternal life. Can't wait. Read his readings. He's anxious. We, on the other hand, try to prolong life as long as we can and often fear death to the point of ignoring its reality in our lives as a passage to the greater glory that awaits us, death having been conquered for us by the resurrection of Jesus. And in fact, these words are probably making some a bit uncomfortable. But it is the difference between letting oneself go into the promise of God, Jesus, and Spirit and somehow trying to be home before we get there. There is a get there, and there is a way there, and this is the path. In these and many other ways, Paul was writing to the Corinthians just as he might have written to us. They were going through this stuff. He was telling them and us by extension, quit measuring and start living into the spirit that safeguards you. Ah, but in this Western culture, we love to measure. Even at John Hus, I, you, perhaps, we most likely often describe the spiritual sense of who we are in the form of our measurements of history and mission. Yet in many ways, it is the practice of the gospel message in the history of Yadhus that propels us into our future. We raise up the early days of Vincent Pisek in the emerging Czech community. We laud the provisions for community and worship they established in extremely difficult times. We remember the navigation of the new world and what that must have been like for immigrants coming into this culture. In much the same way that some of us remember Jan Hus and how it has navigated the new worlds of generations since through the opposition to wars and the support for our troops while demanding peace through movements to protect our environment such as strong stands against nuclear proliferation and disarmament and through great social changes of civil rights, women's rights, LGBT rights and the determination to do something to help the folks who found themselves homeless, marginalized, oppressed, while trying to change the conditions to produce such dehumanization of our sisters and our brothers in spiritual terms. These are all the things we believe in and do or have done. But do they measure up? Do they describe a spiritual home? And if so, how? And what is the spirit in which we move and work and mission as a verb? According to Paul, it is the spirit in which all these things and more are known. The spirit in which our very lives unfold. That same spirit that safeguards us. Guards us in its safety. He says it this way, while we are in this tent, we lament longing to be clothed with our heavenly home. God made us for this purpose and gave us the pledge of the Spirit 
to safeguard our future as the future of Jan Hus was safeguarded long before it began. Some of what Paul says is hard to understand because it's Paul, but also because he is speaking not the human language of accumulation and explanation, but language of spirit, a language that is best understood in the fullness of our heart, the only place where the gaps in the words can complete the meaning in the message. It is not the head and thinking he is about. Rather, he is in the Eastern view of the world that says the heart informs us. The heart receives all the input and stimuli and intuition, and then through the heart we listen. Not as we do here in our culture, raising everything to the level of head and thinking and intelligence, including emotions and counting and metrics and enumeration and so forth to achieve a solution or a direction or even think we might be able to fully describe a spiritual home in the real world. Really? I posit that a spiritual home and the real world is a place of heart. And as soon as I go any further to describe it, I am back in my head. Unless I constantly, intentionally redirect my expressions to you through the center of my heart, and I often forget to do. It's the difference in a way between what's in your wallet and what's in your heart. And if you want to try a little exercise when you are by yourself or in a small group, ask yourself or each other, what's in your heart? After a short while, if you were like me, you will begin to have trouble with the words because after a while, you will be attempting to describe that which cannot be described. The spirit, God, love, heart, Annie. You will be attempting to describe that which holds the fullness of God and love, your own inner spiritual home, and you will run out of words because the heart has its own language, a simple language, begun with the breath of God, not words. We need to breathe in God to complete the mystery in ways I promise we will not understand. Understand. It really is easier to count up everything we've done to grade ourselves or others in our spiritual work and lives. But talking about all of this is like describing a sunset through the shadows it causes. Or like living in Plato's cave. Y'all remember Plato's cave? Plato's cave, also known as the analogy of the cave or the parable of the cave, is a fictional discourse that takes place between Plato, the brother, his brother Glaucon, and Socrates. In it, Socrates and Glaucon have this, this discussion, and they describe a scenario in which people take to be what is false as the real world. In it, Socrates asked Glaucon to imagine a cave inhabited by prisoners who have been chained and held immobile since childhood. Not only are their arms and legs held in place, but their heads and arms are also fixed. And they are compelled to gaze at a wall that is straight ahead of them, a blank wall. Behind them is an enormous fire. 
and between the fire and they, where they are chained, is a walkway along which people walk so that their shadows are projected onto this wall in front of the prisoners. There are also sounds for the people behind them and the objects they are carrying, and the people staring at the wall take these echoes to be real sounds. Socrates suggests that the prisoners would take the shadows to be real things and the echoes to be real sounds, not just reflections of reality, since they are all that the people have ever seen or heard. Are you with me so far? Socrates then supposes that one of the prisoners is freed and permitted to stand up. If someone were to show this prisoner the things that had cast shadows, those objects and people behind them, the prisoner would not recognize them for what they were and could not even name them. They would believe that the shadows on the wall and the sounds and the echoes were more real than the objects that produced them. Suppose further, Socrates says, that the man was compelled to look at the fire. Wouldn't he be struck blind and try to turn his gaze back toward the shadows as toward what he can see clearly and hold to be real? But if somebody forcibly dragged this man out of the cave, or woman, out of the cave, wouldn't that person be angry at the one doing this to them? And if they were dragged all the way out into the sunlight, wouldn't they be distressed and unable to see even the things now said to be true? After some time on the surface, though, Socrates believed that the free prisoner would acclimate. They would see more and more things around them until they could look upon the sun. They would understand that the sun is the source of the seasons and all the years and is the steward of all things in the visible place and is in a certain way the cause of all those things he, she, and their companions had seen. Now Paul says something like this in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13, verse 12, when he says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. In many ways, that glass, Plato's cave, are the shadows of the representations and Paul says more. He says, the reason we do this, the reason we do this, because we know the fear, the awesomeness of God. We go out and we persuade. We try to tell people, come out of the cave. Come out of the darkened glass. Come, don't look at the shadows. Look at what is real. Do not look at anyone in terms of mere human judgment. The old is gone. The new order is here. In other words, come out. We still see shadows, but we all know the cause of the shadows. And we know that the first cause is much greater than anything we understand or can explain. As if first cause explains anything about God. But what words should we use? And that faith, though small as it may be, whether the size of a mustard seed or smaller, is powerful beyond all that we face. Paul tells us, walk by faith, not by sight. And later in the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul describes the hardships that he and his companions have faced. In chapter 8, verse 3, 
same letter, he says, we want you to know, sisters and brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We underwent severe stress, well beyond our ability to cope, to the point of despairing of life itself. In our hearts, we felt we were doomed. Our hearts, which taught us not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead to life. Our hearts, not our head. Our hearts, not our head. Our God is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of our God is, there is freedom. That Spirit is in our heart. As long as God is in our heart, we are free. And we who with unveiled faces reflect our God's glory grow brighter and brighter as we are transformed into the image we reflect comes from the heart. We walk by faith and not by sight. And perhaps that is what a spiritual home in the real world looks like when we walk. We persuade others of the awesomeness of God and the life and the resurrection of Jesus and more. And perhaps that is what a spiritual home in the real world looks like when we talk. We live in a longing, into a longing for heavenly garments and we see our purpose here in life, this life, this passage as a place where we carry that message and learn from others as they reflect that message in their own lives. And perhaps that is the home we have here when we gather, a real home of spirit, all that it means along with all that we don't understand. A spiritual home in the real world is not measured by the ways of the real world. The real world is just a shadow of what is to come. Seeking proof through the shadows leads to the place where the shadows themselves take on the role of reality and we enter into the world of illusion. It may be that a spiritual home in the real world is a place of no shadows, just a growing reflection of God, God's Spirit and the risen Jesus and all and more that that means. Living more deeply into faith in the life to come and not into the past limited vision of our own senses. It seems to me, and maybe to you, that we are all well on our way here to such a place with a ways to go. There is no way to be a spiritual home in the real world without the Spirit. May we continue to find such a home and the Spirit here, together, in all the places we travel. Amen. Yeah.